Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, Dr. Mantra Ramani shares the audio portion of his March 18, 2021 webinar discussion with Michael Howell. Well, thank you everybody for joining. Uh, I am uh, really excited today to have Michael Howell with me. Uh, he's joining us from the UK. Uh, he runs a firm called Cross Border Capital, and he's the author of Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. You see a picture of it uh, here. Uh, we're going to have a conversation that's wide ranging about a whole bunch of topics, uh, whether it's debt markets, US-China relationship, um, and a whole bunch of other uh, fun and exciting uh, uh, issues around global finance and global liquidity. But before we go there, and before we start talking uh, with Michael, uh, I wanna just remind people that next, excuse me, not next week, it's the week after, Sarah wasn't available next week. Uh, Professor Sarah Seeger uh, is gonna join us on March 30th at 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, to talk not only about her book, which is really a memoir called The Smallest Lights in the Universe, but also about her work. Uh, she won a MacArthur grant. Uh, she's been listed as a genius uh, by, by that association, but she's a member of the faculty at MIT and she studies earth and planetary sciences and she looks for other planets. So it's her work that originally uh, identified how uh, astrophysicists could identify exoplanets and planets around other stars elsewhere in the universe that have the potential for life. Um, so uh, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. That'll be on March 30th at 10 a.m. Um, and then, of course, last week we had John Hunter talked about the World Peace Games and some of his work. Uh, he's been a fourth grade teacher, but he's also been in the office of Leon Panetta at the Pentagon talking about how fourth graders provide insights into global stability. Um, for that, I had uh, Jim Latinsky from MP Materials. Uh, this is a really interesting company. If you haven't uh, read or heard anything about them, they are trying to re-domesticate the supply chain for rare earth materials, metals, and processing of them back to the United States in light of the US vulnerability to the Chinese supply chain in that uh, specific industry. Um, for that, I had Danielle DiMartino Booth, who had written a book called Fed Up. She was a Fed insider, very critical. In fact, she and I talked a little bit about how the bond market would be where you need to look to see if, in fact, there was risk brewing that might manifest itself in equity markets. Uh, and in fact, during our conversation is where the original, uh, uh, I think the 10-year busted north of 150 at that point during that conversation, actually. Um, for that, I had Emily uh, from Horizon Advisory. Emily talked about technology standards and how the Chinese are using standards really to gain informational edges, if not more, in terms of the competitive advantage against the United States. Uh, that was an interesting angle on the US-China rivalry. Um, Kevin Warren, uh, commissioner of the Big Ten, uh, talked about student athletes and how navigating uncertainty in the pandemic, if you're running an athletic conference, uh, what some of those challenges are, including whether or not you should pay student athletes, um, et, et cetera. So, and he had a very personally inspiring story as well. Uh, so that conversation also was available for replay. Uh, had Gilman Louie before that. Gilman was the founder and original CEO of InQtel, which was the CIA's venture capital arm. So uh, again, he also touched on US-China relations and the need for uh, different technological capabilities in that rivalry, uh, but a very, a very interesting conversation there as well. And I began this, uh, this year, uh, the series with Elliot Higgins. Elliot is the, uh, the founder and original organizer behind Bellingcat, which is a collective of citizen journalists and others who use open source and social media to connect dots. 
so in the essence of think for yourself and, and that logic, he was able to identify that the Malaysia Flight 17 was shot down by Russians before international authorities were. International authorities were pointing the fingers at the Ukrainians. Likewise, he was able to identify that Assad had used chemical weapons on his own people uh, before international media and or international authorities were able to do so. And he uses only social media and publicly available sources to do so. Uh, so those were some, some, some fun conversations. Again, last uh, 10 second uh, advertisement for my book, Think for Yourself, which is available. And uh, you know, I'm also, uh, to support this webinar series, I did start a Patreon membership program. So, so feel free if you're able and or willing to support me through that format. Um, there we go. Uh, sorry for that long-winded introduction, but Michael, thank you for joining us. Uh, Michael Howell, uh, I'm gonna let you introduce yourself, Michael, because you've got such a distinguished background, uh, including some time really in some very interesting places, uh, including Solomon Brothers in the 80s, which uh, for those that understand what it was like back then, that was ground zero of sort of uh, the financial innovation and sort of everything. Uh, but before we even get to your professional career, Michael, where'd you grow up? I mean, did you know when you were two years old that you were gonna be interested in global liquidity? Was, that, was there any motivation there? I don't think so. Well, first of all, Vikram, thank you for the invitation to be on your program. Uh, it's a it's a great thrill and a very impressive act of, of people to follow. So uh, I'm going to do my best. At uh, two years old, no, I don't think I was right. I was thinking very much, actually. I was probably sucking and that was it. <laughs> Nothing about, uh, uh, no thoughts of liquidity. Uh, the Salomon Brothers period was uh, uh, clearly a very exciting one. Uh, Salomon Brothers were, uh, was, the people that don't know, was the preeminent uh, investment bank worldwide. It was the world's biggest uh, fixed income and forex trading uh, firm. Uh, it dominated the world. Governments had to listen to Salomon Brothers. Uh, and uh, sadly, uh, 10, 15 years ago, actually a bit more than that, 20 years ago, Salomon's uh, basically hit, hit the buffers. Yeah. Uh, well, Michael, I'd love you to actually describe, how did you get the Salomon Brothers? Were you interested in finance? Where'd you grow up, et cetera? That, that's something- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, um, I did an economics degree and I did an economic master's degree. I began working in industry in, uh, in corporate planning uh, for about two to three years. Uh, and then basically what was happening in London was something called Big Bang, uh, where there was financial deregulation, which was uh, prompted by the Thatcher government. Uh, that was the, the brave new world of free markets uh, in finance. Uh, there'd been huge amounts of regulation up to that point. And basically, I was working for a, a UK-based small investment bank, and Salomon Brothers was reaching out globally. Uh, mm -hmm. And they basically began to uh, branch out, in, particularly in international equities, around the mid-1990s. And that's when I joined the firm. Gotcha. And as you know, the, uh, the, the saying about Salomon Brothers, it was a tough environment. In many investment banks, they stab you in the back. Well, as they come at you front on with an axe. Uh, <laughs> sure. That was true. Yeah. Yeah. So at some point you found yourself interested in this topic of liquidity and paying attention to flow of capital, either uh, across borders or even within countries. Um, did that start because of a professional need to figure this out? Were others doing it? I know you, you talk in the book about some of your colleagues uh, and, and sort of the yep. work that's been done there, but sort of where did this, this, this focus on liquidity come from? Well, it was basically a, a combination of factors, actually, which came together at that time. Um, Salomon Brothers basically had a philosophy uh, which was 
looking at capital flow as a way of understanding how markets worked. The pioneer of that was Henry Kaufman. Henry uh, didn't invent flow of funds accounting, but he made it popular. Uh, flow of funds was actually a science that had evolved out of the Federal Reserve in the US, uh, basically in the 50s. But Henry was the pioneer in terms of uh, developing that into a financial framework. Salomon Umbrella's view, which I think I still hold to, is that uh, what's the point in financial markets of dancing on the head of a pin and trying to predict you know, what GDP is going to be doing next quarter, 3.1, 2.4? Does that really make a difference? What you really want to know is where the money is, how the money is flowing, who are the buyers, who are the sellers. And that's really what Salomon Brothers' philosophy was. They looked very much at flow. And so the first thing we needed to understand was, in the international environment, where is the flow? The second thing was actually to try and do that was a hard task because the data was really scratchy. So in the early days, we were actually pioneers in putting that data together. And this is where the global liquidity concept came from, is that we began to look in the, uh, the mid-1980s, in fact, uh, for these flows. And I think we were probably the pioneers, or we certainly coined the phrase global liquidity right, right back then. Yeah. So when you say it was hard to find this information, uh, you know, it's funny when I when I teach uh, some of my students today, I say, you know, I went to I went to college as an undergrad when there was no Internet. And they're like, what? Wait, wait, how did you look up stuff? I said, we didn't have cell phones. I'm like, what do you mean you didn't have cell phones? So when you say it was hard to get information, what does that mean? Does that mean you're literally getting physical copies of reports from people and typing them in? Or what does that mean? Yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of that. I mean, I think the, uh, the basis was that if you look at international data, clearly both sides have to add up. So flows in must equal flows out. Uh, in many cases, only half that data existed. So effectively, you had to build a matrix up of cross-border capital flows, uh, maybe only using different times one side of that equation. But you could get, uh, you could build the whole mosaic up by looking at those scattered inputs, broadly speaking. But it was a question of going to hard copy, uh, and getting in touch with, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of telephone uh, contact, a lot of fax, if you remember what faxes were, uh, yep. central banks and uh, finance ministries worldwide. Yep. Interesting. Obviously, a, an endeavor of data gathering as much as data compilation, right? Uh, yeah, and we, we still maintain data. I mean, the, the, the key to our work is looking at this data flow. Uh, we still cover over 80 countries worldwide on a monthly basis, looking at, uh, at their capital flow picture. Yep. So at some point you decided to part ways with Solomon Brothers. Yeah, that was, that was largely because of the, of the treasury scandal. Uh, heard at the, you know, the end of the, um, uh, at the end of the eighties, early 1990s. And basically, I mean, you can look back in the history books of what happened, but you know, this is dangerous uh, and Solomon got too big and it tried to corner the treasury market and clearly the treasury weren't very happy about that. And effectively, Salomon Brothers went back to what it knew best, which was fixed income and it domestic fixed income. And this was the stage 1990, fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, opening up of uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, China was liberalizing fast. My view was that the world was getting bigger very quickly and emerging markets were the place to be. So I felt the opportunities that Salomon Brothers, maybe wrongly with hindsight, who knows, uh, were being limited. So I moved elsewhere into uh, the emerging market arena. I worked for another company called Bearings, who again became infamous. infamous. Yep. And yep. it sort of just goes to prove that in finance, there's no point in climbing the ladder because the ceiling always comes down to meet you. 
uh, <laughs> crises, and that's it. Yep. So it's interesting, emerging markets. So, uh, you know, for those that don't know Michael's background, he was a top rated emerging market analyst at that point and a strategist and, you know, really well respected and understood some of the uh, dynamics. Do you think that has to do, Michael, with the fact that liquidity is more important for these emerging markets and you brought a different lens and that those yep. came with this sort of regional focus or, oh, let me understand that this is a commodity heavy country, just yep. miss the big picture? 110%. It was basically all because... Uh, what I knew at um, uh, you know what what I knew at Salomon Brothers and effectively looking at these capital flows that that's that's the key thing. What moves emerging markets is money flow, and that's where it can you got to look at where it comes from. It came principally from foreign investors. Yep, like shifting these markets. Yep, yeah. And then so if we roll the clock forward, at some point you start cross border capital. Mm-hmm. And that, yep, uh, late nineteen nineties. Okay. And the rationale there was there was more interest in the flow of liquidity? I think it was broadly speaking uh, all to do with the fact that uh, asset allocation wasn't being done very well uh, you know, worldwide. Uh, we thought there was, there was something we could add to that. Uh, you know, macro investing was beginning to get a role. Um, and we felt that the way that we looked at the world was actually beneficial to that. So we set up an independent research firm initially advising on, on investments. And then basically, uh, I suppose about five years later, we started money management. Yep. Uh, and now we have, we have a joint research firm and uh, a money management business. Great. Great. All right. So given that background, I can't imagine someone more interesting to talk to right now, Michael, than you when it comes to some of the dynamics affecting the world that we're in today. Well, right. So let's, so let's roll the clock forward. You wrote this book. Um, and uh, so let's start there. Why'd you write this book? Uh, is it because it came out last year, right? So is it because liquidity is more important today? Or less? I think it, 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 it's partly so. I mean, bear in mind, this book was written before COVID. That doesn't mean to say, uh, that the conclusions are out of line now, uh, then they're not dated. In actual fact, they've been underscored by what's happened because the response to the COVID crisis has been basically more liquidity. And that's really what the whole tenor of the book was about. What it was saying is we're in a world where uh, central banks have got to keep throwing liquidity into markets to keep the, the whole thing spinning. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening. The reason I wrote the book was that we found many of our clients and others too were saying, well, look, where can we read about global liquidity? Where can we read about the impact of capital flow on markets? Yep. Yep. Hold my hands up and say, well, actually, you know, <laughs> just read our stuff. I mean, that I, I can't think of any academic uh, references that are convenient. So then I just thought, well, okay, let, let's let's write a book. Yep, perfect. So let me ask the very basic question in case people don't understand it. What do you mean by global liquidity? Liquidity is basically the pool of credit and savings that's available to spend on financial assets or on real goods and services. The global dimension is basically saying that this is now a worldwide phenomenon and you've got effectively money flows that are shifting around the world. Cross-border capital flows are linking different economies. The other thing that we try and stress is we use the word liquidity rather than money or money supply because money supply for economists has a very fixed definition which is basically the retail deposits of high street banks. And that's how money supply is traditionally uh, defined. Our view is that the world has got hugely bigger 
uh, in the last 20, 30 years. It's gone global and it's basically broadened into wholesale entities. And what we mean by that are things which people know as shadow banks. Shadow banks are critical in this whole equation. They were certainly instrumental in the global financial crisis in 2008, and they've been uh, their fingerprints have been over markets lately. Yep. So, Michael, if I go back and I think about how banking used to work, you and I would go through our day jobs, we'd save some money, we'd deposit in the bank. The bank would then take that money through fractional reserve banking and lend it out right. to manufacturing company XYZ, who would turn around, buy the equipment, invest, grow, etc., that's not how it works now. And in your book, you talk about the role of corporate balance sheets in yeah. changing that dynamic. Maybe explain that a little bit, because I think that's going to help us understand what's happening right now with the credit markets, with the tenure, et cetera. So that, that's a key part, I think, of what's changed here. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a number. Of, it's, a, it's a big area. And let me sort of tiptoe into it um, first by saying that that textbook model that you referred to clearly doesn't work now. It was kind of questionable whether it was ever valid. In fact, it's a, it's a convenient description, but it isn't necessarily reality. What you had going on um, in the last, certainly in the last 20 years, is what we describe as a reversal of polarity in the global financial system. What we mean by that is that former borrowers have become lenders and former lenders have become borrowers. Effectively, the architecture has sort of shifted its, its polarity significantly. And the key cause of that is China. Now, all these, most of these effects that we articulate in the book come back to the relationship between the West or more principally between America and China, how that's unfolding. And effectively what happened was that China was embraced um, by the US way back in the early 1970s. There was a pivot to Asia that was made as a way of thwarting the ambitions of the Soviet Union. And you can look back in the history books and you look at what Nixon was doing. It was called ping pong diplomacy originally, which was a US-China uh, table tennis competition. In fact, initially, that was the first move. And then Nixon met Mao uh, and Kissinger, et cetera. And essentially, the ball kicked off from there. Now, what that did is it basically put on to fast forward the Chinese economy. Uh, after Mao, Deng eventually came in, lots of reforms, and the Chinese economy started to get lots of momentum. China was allowed into the World Trade Organization in 2001, which cemented its position. Uh, and basically, China has become, uh, if you like, a quasi-capitalist economy, or let's call it a command-driven capitalist economy. And the whole point about this is that it's effectively eating our lunch, or it's eating America's lunch, and it's doing that with a big, big appetite. Uh, what's changed in the world economy is numbers. What really matters here is not necessarily per capita incomes, it's numbers of people. And the US has got 350 million people, China's got one and a half billion plus, okay? And these, this, is the, this is the different equation. And it's gonna have a big, big effect on the world economy if it's not already having one. Now, what does that mean? It means that effectively, Western corporations are finding it really difficult to compete. Uh, marginal returns on capital falling, China is undercutting, uh, in many cases. Now, what does that mean? It means two effects, and this is coming back a rather long-winded answer to your question. But number one, what it means is if returns on capital come down, there's no new investment. One of the hallmarks of economic development in the last 20 years in the West is that capex rates have fallen dramatically, certainly outside of tech. The second thing it does is it encourages existing capital, existing businesses to start to revolutionize their costs. 
So in other words, if they've got a low marginal return on capital, they want to get their average return up. So they do a lot of cost cutting. That means shedding labor. It means making them some more, more efficient. It means that they create cash flow, which many, many corporations have done, but they don't invest that cash flow in new capex. So it sits in treasury. Now, what do they do with that, those treasury deposits? They put them into financial markets. Now, the problem is, which is why I come back to this whole question about reversal of polarity, those corporations which used to borrow from financial markets are now investing in those financial markets. Can they put their money into banks? No, because banks do not give guarantees for large size wholesale deposits. So in other words, it's risk capital, both for the bank and for the corporation. So they go into wholesale money markets where they can basically get collateral uh, against which they can put their deposits. And that's effectively why you've had this growth in wholesale deposits, the money markets, the so-called repo markets, and the shadow banks have fed off that. And that's effectively how the equation has evolved. And so a couple of really interesting points that, that come out of that, uh, your comments just now. Number one, does that mean the Fed and or the People's Bank of China are less important because they don't control the shadow banks? Uh, they can try to, I mean, just sort of, what does that mean for sort of central bank watching? Okay, uh, it's a very good point. It's probably the key point in this whole argument. And what, uh, what, what this thesis is basically saying is that this embrace of China back starting uh, 50 years ago has gone wrong now, it's become ugly. And the reason being is that China has grown industrially uh, significantly, but it's basically, as it's grown, it's weakened the financial structure of the West, particularly the US. Now, the irony is that the financial structure of the West is much, much more fragile than China's is, because the People's Bank has much greater control over the system than the Federal Reserve and other central banks. And the testimony or the example of that is to look back to 2008 and the financial crisis. And that was basically a good example of the Federal Reserve losing control. It didn't control the dollar credit system. Now, what they've done for the last 10 years is scramble to try and get control. And you know what you could say is that 2020, you saw three very key events in the world, okay? Uh, number one was the COVID crisis. Let's not forget that. Number two, the development of central bank digital currencies. That is the future, okay? And COVID has been a good smokescreen for them to develop this, good excuse. The third thing was the division of swap lines, central bank swaps between countries for the US and for China, basically being you know, among friends. The US is basically creating swap lines for its friends so they can borrow dollars whenever they want, and the Chinese are doing much the same. So the world is being cleaved into two increasingly. Yep. Yep. It's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on that specific topic uh, of sort of the U.S.-China bifurcation. Before we go there, though, you raised the topic of digital. Um, I, I have to ask you, because when I look at central bank balance sheets, they still have this one line that you might argue is interesting in this world, which is gold. 
right? right. So, so they've got gold. And then you're hearing more about these digital alternatives to gold. Some people call it Bitcoin or what have you, the sort of the digital versions of assets that can't be printed by political leaders, um, hedges against monetary debasement, call it what you want. I mean, there's lots of explanations, but how do they factor into this equation? So why do central banks still hold gold, number one? And more importantly, is there a role for it going forward? And then how do things like Bitcoin factor into, into this whole equation, given what you just said about the development of digital central banking backed currencies? Okay, gold is gonna be a big issue, which we, we sidetracked with. Uh, my view is that gold does have a role because I think it's the, the pure monetary commodity. And I think the world ultimately defaults back to gold at some stage. So I'm not gonna say I'm a gold bug, but I'm a believer in gold. It's certainly been with us for, for millennial, uh, millenniums and it's going to continue in that regard. Okay, wh what about central banks actually? Why do they have gold? That may be a good question, but you need to talk to a central banker for that. Why do they keep holding it? <laughs> okay. What do, you, what do you need going forward in terms of developing uh, digital currencies? I think the key thing is that you need some sort of anchor. Now, the way that the world has grown up for the last 20 or 30 years is that anchor has been US inflation. Okay, so basically the US has had an inflation target the world has effectively been dollarized and uh, broadly other countries fix their currencies basically to the US to the US dollar in some form, uh, unless they want a faster, particularly faster or slower inflation rate. So I think those are the anchors you've got. There's no reason why those anchors can't exist going forward. The, the, the difference is with digital currencies is that let's call it the authorities, uh, the monetary authority, the fiscal authorities, have much, much greater control over us uh, under a digital currency world because we're, we're all going to have accounts at the central banks not, or notional accounts at the central banks. Whether the central banks will want to run those themselves is a moot point. They may get traditional retail banks, the city banks, uh, the JP Morgans to run those for them, but it does question the whole role of banking in this new world. So uh, it's coming. Uh, it hasn't been well thought out by policymakers yet as to what the architecture will look like, but something in this in this sphere is coming. Now, the key missing part in this whole equation is the bridge currencies. In other words, that Britain can have a digital money, America can have digital money, China can have digital money, but how do you link these monies together? So what is a bridge currency? At the moment, the kind of the bridge currency, which is not a bridge currency, is the SWIFT system, but that's really a messaging system, not strictly speaking a bridge currency. What you need is something like uh, the Ripple XRP uh, phenomenon, which is actually a unit which can act as a bridge currency. And they thought about this very clearly. Uh, so that's the sort of world I think we're moving into. The Bitcoin is a different question. That's about a store of value. Do you believe that store of value will be will have will maintain its integrity in the next uh, you know foreseeable future? That's a question that the holders have got to judge. I think Bitcoin has a future. Maybe fifty five thousand bucks of Bitcoin is too much, but there is a price out there for that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, I'm sure I've gotten a couple of questions that came in around crypto. As uh, we'll come back to that, I think if we have time, because I think that can lead us down a, a rabbit hole that that takes a while. Um, let me come back to another major point you make, uh, Michael, in the book that I think has relevance to a lot of the anxieties people and markets today feel. Um, I think you've indicated that today, the focus on 
interest rates is missing the point. That it's not the that that's that's the wrong way to think about cost of money. I think is how you put it, uh, and that in fact you think cost of money can better be determined by what it buys you, and that has to do with exchange rates, etc. Uh, yeah. Combine that with the fact that there's this obsession with rates, and you know it leads me to a couple very obvious questions. One, negative rates, positive rates. What does that imply for liquidity or conditions that sort of we should be focused on? And then I'll, I'll pull up a couple of charts that you, you've, you've sent along. The big question on a lot of people's minds is what the heck is happening with this tenure and where does it go? Okay, well, let, there's, there's, a, there's a lot in that. So let me try and unpack some yep. of it. Yep. First of all, the price of money is not the rate of interest, okay? The rate of interest is the premium on money. It's not the price of money. The price of money is what you can buy with it, which is the exchange rate, okay? What is the most important factor in terms of monetary control? It's the, it's the volume of liquidity in the system. And the reason for that is that uh, the world economy uh, today is much more a refinancing system than a new financing system. If you read economic textbooks, it's about new financing. In other words, the cost of capital, where it may well be that interest rates are important. In a world where you've got huge amounts of debt and those debts have to be rolled over and refinanced, what you need is balance sheet. The world has basically shifted from a new financing system to a refinancing mechanism. And that's where we sit right now. So what's critical is basically balance sheet, the ability to roll over these large positions. Now, central bankers, in my view, my humble view, is they don't get it yet because they still talk about setting interest rates. Okay, And if you, if you listen to the Bank of England, who must be, I don't know, smoking dope or something, they're even talking about negative interest rates. Well, this is the problem we've had for the last you know, 20 odd years. Interest rates have been too low. They've basically encouraged debt take up. If you want debt to escalate further into the future, unendingly, then keep interest rates lower, put them negative, but you're gonna end up blowing the system apart. I mean, it's foolish to have low interest rates in this environment. What you need to do is to think again about how the world should be working. And if you go back to the 19th century and look at Badger, Walter Badger's book, Lombard Street, he said what central banks need to do is to lend at high interest rates, but lend abundantly, okay, against good collateral. And that's what they should be doing. And that's really the message. The 19th century was all about shadow banking and fragile financial systems, rather like we've got today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I've got a question that's sort of relevant to this topic that just came in here, uh, Michael. So let me ask it. Does euro dollar debt funded by repo constitute new money creation? And should it be included in these logics? Uh, the answer is almost certainly yes. I mean, certainly yes for the almost certainly yes for the first part, and definitely yes for the second part. Uh, I mean, the, the question is that the euro dollar deposits will have a multiplier on them. So effectively, what's happening is that they're serving as effectively a collateral against which you can you can borrow further. So yes. Yep. Okay. Let me let me pull up two slides that uh, from from your slides that you shared with me because I think this will also help answer the question, which is, okay, maybe people shouldn't focus on rates, but the reality is people do, and the reality is it's tied into financial markets and models. And if rates are going up, and I have to discount long duration assets back, this is going to have a big impact, etc. So let's look at a couple of the slides you shared with me, which I think could prove uh, interesting. Um, to, uh, to, to describe this. So let me let you describe this, this, this slide here. Okay, let, let me just correct something you said. I'm not saying that rates are unimportant. 
uh, yeah. rates are clearly critical for the, all the reasons you said. And the most important rate in the world economy is the US 10-year treasury rate because it's the benchmark for everything. But what I'm, what I'm saying, which is the difference, is that the 10-year treasury yield is largely a liquidity phenomenon. Okay? Yep. It's driven by liquidity flow. Thank you for correcting me. Yep. What yep. this is basically saying is that the yellow line on this chart is the 10-year treasury yield. Okay, So the scale on the left is looking at percentages. And this is a time series that moves from 2010 to date, or in fact, to the end of February uh, 2021. And the red line is a, is a factor model. And I stress a very simple factor model that basically has the US uh, ISM survey, the PMI, in other words, Purchasing Managers Index. It has the Aussie dollar, US dollar cross rate. That's a very cyclical exchange rate. It has copper and gold prices, and that's it. And what that basically shows is that with those four factors, you can basically predict most of the twists and turns in the treasury market. And that's basically saying the treasury market is at the heart of the economic system. Now, what you've got right now is a growing gap, okay? Uh, now, that gap is being closed fast as we speak, and you've got basically treasury yields I think uh, as we're you know, in the market right now at about 175. So you've had a 50 basis point jump in treasury yields this month, which probably puts the bond, long bond down about 5% in price, which is a whopping great move uh, by any standards. Uh, the treasury market in America now is having the worst run it's had since the 1950s, to put it into perspective. And what that V shape on the red line is saying is, is there's further pain to occur. Uh, we think that the Treasury yield is going to move into this 2 to 2.5% range. Now, what does that mean? It means it kind of gets ugly at some stage in the next few months for Wall Street, uh, because it's not going to be able to cope with the yields at these levels, or particularly this rise in the yield. Uh, is the Federal Reserve going to be able to do anything about that through so-called yield curve control? Uh, dream on. Uh, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's capable of doing that, because yeah. foreigners own so much of the Treasury market, and you know, among the foreigners... Asian holders are, are huge. Yep. So I put a dot where the, today the 10 year is. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that came through everyone. I tried to do the annotation feature here. Uh, yep. So maybe that did, maybe that didn't. I can't quite tell. Uh, and you look back, you can just look back at the two previous instances of what happened uh, in earlier episodes in, uh, in, the, uh, in the period in the middle, which we called the uh, Shanghai Accord period, was when central banks globally eased you got a 150 basis point rise then in the treasury yield, uh, similar to what we expect now. And if you go back to 2013, which was Bernanke's taper tantrum, uh, you got a similar 150 basis point move. Uh, yep. Those are ugly periods for bond investors. Yep, I'm gonna pull up the other one that showed what you think is happening with the yield curve, Michael, because I think that's also, uh, even though they may not be able to, in theory, control the curve, you're suggesting that the curve is gonna change. Well, I think that they, yeah, the, the Federal Reserve can't control the curve, but it can influence the curve by throwing in liquidity. The, uh, the fact is that the Federal Reserve is one among many players. There's a lot of sources of liquidity. Uh, the wholesale markets, you know, banks, uh, foreign investors, et cetera, all these things come into play. And the Federal Reserve is you know, one of those players, albeit maybe the most important. But it can influence, it can't control. And what you've got here is an example of this is going back to my Salomon Brothers days as to how we used to look at the, at the treasury market or the yield curve. Um, Salomon Brothers effectively 
uh, invented the yield curve. Uh, one of my former colleagues, Marty Leibowitz, came up with that in the, uh, the mid-70s as a way of responding to the end of the Bretton Woods and floating exchange rates and effectively said, let's look at yields as a continuum uh, across the spectrum of uh, maturities. And that's what the yield curve effectively is. Now, what you've got here is effectively a dynamic that says what drives the yield curve is that yellow line, which is basically looking at US liquidity flow. And what we've done is we've advanced forward in time that liquidity curve by about nine months to show that liquidity flows are driving the yield curve. And although it's a wonkish uh, concept, it does it through something called term premia. It expands term premia. Now, the, uh, the irony or the paradox in this is basically that if the Federal Reserve embarks on yield curve control, in other words, throwing more liquidity at the system, ultimately, it's going to push yields up, not pull them down. In the short term, it pulls them down, but in the medium term, it pulls them up. Why? Because basically, the treasury market is a safe asset. Uh, people hold treasuries because they're fearful. If there's huge amounts of liquidity washing in the system, um, you can take risk. Systemic risks are low. People go into risk assets. They buy equities. They buy real estate. They buy commodities. They buy Bitcoin. They buy Mickey Mantle cards, uh, whatever. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So it's interesting because I think at the heart of what you're describing here, uh, and, and I think it comes across very clearly in the book, is the demand for safe assets is one way to think about this, the safe versus risky. And I know you've got some really interesting charts, I don't have them with me here, uh, that talk about the ratio of risk to safe assets, et cetera, being more powerful as a predictor of future equity market returns than things like the CAPE ratio, et cetera. Um, so walk us through this sort of logic of how demand for safe assets shifts based on central bank or yield curve logics. Okay, well, let, let, me, let me put it this way. If you look at, uh, if you look at investment from a top-down perspective, okay, uh, what you're really looking at is asset allocation. Okay? So in other words, let's take an economy uh, like the US, which has uh, a set demographic profile. It's got a number of retirees. It's got a tax structure, and it's got inflation expectations embedded in that. People mm -hmm. hold assets according to, those, to that mix. So in other words, if you've got a lot of retirees who are about to retire and take their pensions uh, right now, you're going to want a lot of short duration bonds in your asset mix. If yep. you think that inflation is going to be a long term problem and you're not taking your pensions for 20 years, you want more equities or you want more gold or you want more Bitcoin or whatever the, the answer is. But you want a different asset mix. If you look at uh, the US over time, uh, the asset mix has been remarkably stable over the long term. It's like been like a wobbly man. You shift it one way, but it comes back to the middle. OK. And if you look at Japan or you look at Britain or you look at Europe, it's exactly the same principle, although the mixes, the starting mixes are going to be different. But in other words, you've got this same mean reversion going on. So basically, that mean reversion can be thought of as a move back to a certain mix between safe assets and risk assets. Now, equities are your risk asset. Your safe asset is government bonds and cash. And so what happens is you get asset allocation being skewed backwards and forwards. If you right now, despite what people say in the media, the asset mix in the US is about normal. It's a little bit above normal, I'd, I'd say. It's not as high as it was, not as risk-taking as it was in 2008, nor in the year 2000. So Wall Street, uh, I'm not going to say Wall Street's cheap, 
uh, it was very cheap last March, amazingly cheap. But right now it's a little bit above uh, probably average levels. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, a couple of different topics have come in here. Before we transition to them, Michael, I'm going to just ask a fun question. Uh, do you have a book uh, that you'd recommend? A lot of the watchers of this webinar series seems to love book recommendations, aside from yours, which I'm, of course, endorsing. Yeah. <laughs> is, there, is, there, is there a good book you'd recommend? Well, I, think that, I think if it's a novel, I think I'd say The Bridge of St. Louis Ray by Thornton Wilder, I think is a great book. It's a short book, but it's, yep. a, it's, a, it's a fascinating book. If it's a, if it's a, a nonfiction, I'd go for uh, Ron Chano's Grant. Uh, oh, uh, that's a big book it's a big book the greatest american president i say that because he was a distant relation of mine but definitely uh, check there that you out. go there you go well actually uh greg hayes the uh, ceo of raytheon uh who was on this webinar series last year actually recommended grant as well uh oh, really okay. so, uh interesting he's enough. a great character a great character yeah. uh, yep so. uh, what about any movie or miniseries recommendations i don't know i think one of my favorites has been the the man in the high castle on amazon prime okay that's a fantastic series well worth watching a lot of episodes but that's it's great okay all right good uh freedom wins in the end so yeah so let's uh speaking of castles and uh and uh sort of uh old european logics if you will uh let's turn to the idea of brexit what is brexit what is brexit no what does it mean what does it mean mean for liquidity what does it mean for uh, these dynamics? Uh, well, I think, it, okay, it, it, it means a whole heap of things, but I think one's got to frame this, uh, you know, in the, in the correct way. And basically what you've got going on in the world economy, as many people will know, is a shift eastwards, okay, progressively. And you can basically date this to say that, you know, broadly speaking, sometime, uh, you know, around about the 1950s, the center of gravity of the world economy uh, was mid-Atlantic uh, by, I think it was uh, the time of the Berlin Wall falling, it was somewhere just east of Germany. So you're getting the shift from the east, the movement east is largely because of the growth of China. And yep. somewhere now it's it's sort of out there uh, beyond, the, uh, beyond Moscow, but it's basically shifting progressively eastwards. And that's, you know, our academics have done these calculations based on the importance of economies around the world and their weight, uh, their geographical weight on a map. Now, what you've got effectively, as we know in China, is a Belt and Road Initiative plan, which is Xi Jinping's uh, vision of saying, let's move from east to west and let's get the Chinese economy integrated. Well, there's another episode of that. There's another Belt and Road Initiative, uh, an early stage one, which is basically going from uh, west to east and it's starting in Germany. And Germany is basically pulling the European Union, or let's put it more strictly, it's pulling a subset of the European Union eastwards. And effectively, it's filling a vacuum. And if you look at the history of Germany, Germany is an eastward-looking country, okay? That's what history has always shown, okay? And basically, Germany is moving more and more in that direction. What do we mean by that? Just take a look at at foreign direct investment flows. And if you look at the data, uh, data is data which comes from the Deutsche Bundesbank, basically shows that in the last 20 years, there's been a very significant shift of capital away from the West, including America, France, Spain, et cetera, Germany foreign investment there, into Eastern Europe and Russia. And that's the way it's going. 
Yeah. Yep. Now, that tells you a lot about what Brexit is about, because effectively, uh, the, the, the problem with the European Union is that not only is it seeing that sort of internal shift, leaving behind the Mediterranean fringe, but it's saddled with the euro. Now, the euro uh, was a derivative of the European Union or what used to be called the common market. Okay, it came out of that. Yep. Now what you've got is it's the tail wagging the dog, if you like. Effectively, the European Union is a derivative of the euro. The yep. euro is the monster that's driving everything. In, in economics, one of the things that you know is that fixed exchange rate systems, wherever those fixed exchange rate systems are, be it in the United States or in Britain or in Europe, the rich regions get richer and the poor regions get poorer. Fact, okay? Look at the US. What you've had since the, the, the harmonization of a single dollar system is that basically the rich states have got richer and the poorer ones in the South have got poorer, okay? How is that alleviated? It's alleviated by... Uh, fiscal transfers, social security. It's alleviated by procurement programs. So the US government basically uh, will spend money in those regions, either through military procurement or military bases or whatever it may be, will even out demand. Same in the UK, you've got poor regions, for example, in Scotland or in Wales, and they are evened out by regional policy. Go to Europe, does that happen? tiny minuscule amounts of transfers it just doesn't happen there's no fiscal harmony it what europe needs to become is a fiscal transfer union so effectively what you've got is the big state this is the replacement of the former soviet union okay yeah. it's become a big state look at their uh, what they've done over the covid vaccine i mean this is just you know big government gone mad and these are just small instances of what is this bigger picture and effectively what's happening in the eurozone is that the rich countries are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Germany has been a major, major winner, okay? Uh, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece have been the casualties. But look at France. France is not faring well. France's debt load is, just, is skyrocketing, okay? Uh, France has now got, I think, the biggest debt load of any economy in, in any major economy in Europe. Hmm. This is a big problem, okay? And the economic fissures are starting to sort of pull apart here. And yep. Germany is shifting eastwards. Now, I'll give you an anecdote. And the anecdote which I throw in, which is, you know, for what it's worth, is worth thinking about. Uh, my son-in-law runs a Mittelstadt business in Germany. So he's German. Mm -hmm. meat big meat, meat processing business. Clients, Unilever, Nestle, uh, etc. They ask these companies, where should we build our next factory? Uh, in Europe, okay, outside of Germany. And what was the unanimous answer from all these big conglomerates? Russia. Interesting. Right? Very that's the demand. Russia is a big consumer market. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that it's going. Okay. Interesting. Well, you know, I've always felt that, you know, and in fact, history suggests monetary union without political union is not a union and will ultimately exactly. unravel. And I've always thought either Europe goes into the United States of Europe or it crumbles apart. Like there's one or two outcomes and and, and that requires some sort of fiscal or, or, or sovereignty give up, if you will. Um, and, and that doesn't seem likely uh, given the deltas there. Michael, you raised the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and so let's, let's go there and talk about this in light of the US-China rivalry. One way to think about the Belt and Road Initiative is 
the Chinese version of the Marshall Plan. Hey, we're going to invest over there to create markets for our future goods, services, et cetera. And more importantly, and this is the big topic I want to make sure we spend some time on, we can force trade of goods and services onto our currency. And therefore, we become a possible inching towards alternative to the US dollar reserve currency. Absolutely, got, got it in one. This is, this is the key thing. In my book, I start out in chapter one, I think around page 13 with a quote from the People's Liberation Army. Okay. I've got it, I've got it. You want me to read it? Okay. I'm gonna, read I was, it out, yeah. Read it <laughs> out. I was gonna read it, literally, it says that, not surprisingly, China for one is eager to displace both the US dollar and America's financial imprint, especially in Asia. And then Michael quotes directly from Major General Chao Liang of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. We should promote the renminbi to be the primary currency of Asia, just as the US dollar first became the currency of North America and then the currency of the world. Every globalization was initiated by a rising empire. And as a rising superpower, the one belt, one road strategy is the beginning of China's own globalization. It is a countermeasure to the US strategy of shifting focus to the East. That's absolutely black and white. And that's why I put the quote in because that tells you exactly what China is trying to do. Okay, now the stage that China's at is it wants to rival the US dollar system, okay? And make no mistake, it's, go it's going about this in exactly the right way and it's gonna be an issue. Now, let me uh, explain the perspective that we have on China, which is articulated in the book, okay? I spent, and I didn't go into this originally, but I spent when I was in academia uh, quite a lot of time studying uh, Soviet bloc economies. I was taught by an American professor called Richard Portes, uh, who's now, uh, now retired, but or he's still, I think he's emeritus professor at London Business School, but he was the expert on centrally planned economies. Yeah. If you know what is happening in China, it is an absolute rerun of what happened in the Soviet Union. The Chinese won't like to hear that, but that's basically what's going on. And the lesson that comes out of that loud and clear is uh, that every year, when you looked at data on the Chinese economy produced by the CIA, sorry, the Russian economy produced by the CIA, they used to put a projection in that next year forecast. And that forecast was always that the Soviet economy would collapse in the following year. And it never did until it did. But that took 20 odd years to occur. So all people that are predicting that China's going to fall off the rails uh, next year have got it wrong, okay? S command economies can keep going for decades. In that time, they can build up ahead of steam, and they can more importantly build up their, mil their military and their global presence. And that's really the threat. Now, China is now embarking on a stage of financialization. And I said right at the beginning that China's financial system is much, much more robust than the West. The West has got these flaky structures where liability structures of many economies are very, very fragile. Look at 2008 as an example of that, built on the shadow banks and, and uh, you know, poor quality collateral. Uh, and that can easily go wrong. You know, will we get a financial uh, collapse in the next five years? I think many people listening to this and outside would say, yeah, there's a decent probability. China probably won't because it controls its system. The People's Bank is at the center of that. Mm -hmm. what trying to do is to do three things, okay, which we go through in the book. 
Number one, they want to basically create a trade credit market in RMB. Okay, that's how you get it used. And the reason being is that China is the world's biggest importer and exporter. Uh, most of the most of their trade is denominated in dollars, but all they need to do at a stroke of a pen is to make that RMB, and everybody has to trade with them in RMB. And the Chinese banks will come in and they'll be supplying the RMB as trade credit. Okay. Those of you that say that's impossible, it won't happen, look at the history books and go back to 1913 when sterling, the sterling pound, was the predominant currency worldwide. The US dollar wasn't used. Within five years, the US dollar was the dominant currency worldwide because sterling had stopped being lent through World War I and American banks had taken over and most world trade was beginning to be denominated in dollars. Okay, So it can happen very quickly. Secondly, look at the swap lines that China is creating around the region. Okay, what are those swaps for? Clearly, they must be for trade negotiation or trade use, I think. So that's point number one. Secondly, open up the bond market to international capital. They're doing that and they're sucking a huge amount of liquidity into their economy. Number three, create a digital yuan, okay, which allows peer to peer transfer. They're five years ahead of America on that. Okay. Mm -hmm. America is still thinking about how to regulate the crypto space. They should have done that long ago and just get on with it. America is still leading. It's got to lead for the, sake, for the sake of the West beyond anything else. And it needs to get out there. China has stolen the march in many, many uh, respects. And too many people are saying, you know, you know well-read academics, etc., cetera, are saying, look, the Chinese system is flaky. It's about to fall apart. Just watch it. Just watch it collapse. Uh, forget it, it's not going to collapse. It's going to keep going at least for 20 years under the current guise. It's going to get a lot bigger and a lot more powerful and the financial system is coming at us. Yep. So you, a couple couple of topics here. One, given the, the emphasis on trade, I'm going to connect it at seemingly disparate domains, but I think you, you'd be uniquely positioned, Michael, to comment on it. The US dollar was really ingrained actually quite deeply in large part because of the use of oil being priced in dollars and petrodollars and sort of all of that stuff. Does the fact that the world is electrifying take away some of that impetus, if you will, to keep the dollar in a reserve status, while at the same time, the Chinese sort of attempt at this is going, is that a factor? I mean, very few people are connecting those dots, I don't think. Yeah, it's, it's a great thought. And it's absolutely true. Because effectively, what happened is if you look at the history of currency, and what happened to the dollar post Bretton Woods, effectively, Bretton Woods, if you think about it, uh, you know, many people would say it's basically when uh, the US dollar came off gold. Actually, what it really was, was that Europe was kicked out of the dollar system. Uh, that's, that's the key point about Bretton Woods. And it allowed America to pivot towards Asia and, as we said, China. The second event was in July 1974, when one of the Salomon Brothers partners, William Simon, who was then Treasury Secretary, went out to uh, Saudi Arabia and did a tacit deal with the Saudis and OPEC. And basically, this has only recently come out in the media, but basically what happened was that, uh, that Simon said uh, to the Saudis, look, if you price your oil in dollars, we will give you access to US capital markets for, through treasuries. Uh, you don't have to disclose what you're buying, it's all hidden, and we'll give you military support, okay? Yep. Uh, if you look at basically what happened when the fall of the Berlin Wall, Wall occurred, more or less America entered into that bargain with many emerging markets. Think back to what happened in the British Empire in the 19th century. That 
uh, financial military complex was how they operated too. Okay, yep. it was about, about sterling pound and about the military. And what you've got now is a similar equation unfolding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So here's the criticism. I've got three people that texted me this criticism. There's no way in the world global capital will trust an authoritarian regime that doesn't protect property rights. So how could they be a reserve currency if the Chinese are not are authoritarian and, and in theory don't protect property rights? Okay. Uh, if there are any French people on this call, um, we can ask them the same question about the US dollar because uh, French banks have been fined huge, huge amounts of money for using the dollar in Iran. Uh, so exactly the same thing applies. Yep. Okay. Um, all right. We're running out of time. I'm not going to get to all the questions, but I want to sort of get your thoughts on how this US-China rivalry unfolds. So play the clock forward for us here. Three, five, 10 years. What happens? Is the yuan a reserve currency? I think the yuan is a reserve currency. I think the world basically cleaves into two areas where you get Asia, uh, you know, an Asian bloc. Uh, I think one of the things that will be interesting is effectively, you know, U.S. relations towards Asia. Taiwan is definitely key to that. Uh, you know, I acknowledge all the, all the facts that China is not yet a, uh, an, uh, not capable of delivering uh, an active military threat. Uh, it doesn't really have the navy, the navy or the reach to do very much at the moment, but things are changing. Okay, fast. Uh, could it attack Taiwan? Moot point, I don't know what the latest thinking is. Probably it's a 50-50, but then America would have a big decision to make in that regard. And if America uh, was unable to defend Taiwan, I think the footprint of America in Asia would take a significant knock. And sure. you, what you'd be looking for, and again, history is really uh, you know, a good guide here, is if you look back to what happened between Germany, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union in the 1930s, what you want is the sort of the wake up thought of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And that was a thing that really sort of shocked people because here were two rivals suddenly getting together. So could there be a Japan-China link up? I mean, that's a, f a f thought flung into the you know, future, into the, you know, into, the uh, you know, into space. But, you know, basically it may be something that's coming through. So I think that what you've got is this Asian bloc which is forming and effectively, as I said, Central Asia is the region which is really up for grabs. So I think you've got this, this cleavage in the world which is basically underway. The problem the West has got is the debt load that it's taking on. And it's not the fact that that debt may well be bad debt in terms of insolvent debt that will never be paid back. It's much more how is it going to be refinanced? Because debt has a maturity, and that maturity averages at the moment about five to six years. So the whole debt stock in the world economy has to be turned over in that period. Now, if you get problems, in other words, a lack of liquidity, you're going to get some big, big problems in Western financial markets. And mm. that's what I keep alluding to. That's what uh, politicians and central bankers have missed. Keeping interest rates low are the poison that makes it difficult for the Western financial system to grow or to become stable. They need to get interest rates up. Uh, that may be at the cost of Wall Street having a dive, but ultimately, in the longer term, it's got to be a good thing. I've got to ask this question because four people have asked it, Michael. I know we're out of time, but inflation. Right. Coming? Monetary phenomenon? Liquidity phenomenon? What is it? 
uh, it's, I think, broadly, the experience we've had in the last, um, you know, two, three, four decades is that inflation is increasingly a real economy phenomenon. Uh, it's been associated very clearly with technology and with China effects, uh, the, the globalization. Um, is inflation going to pick up? It's going to pick up. It's going to tick up in the US, you know, meaningfully this year. Core inflation may be less so, but you're still going to get probably a print uh, in terms of um, high street inflation of maybe between four and five percent sometime this year. Uh, I think that's probably enough to spook central bankers sufficiently to start nudging sure. rates up. Sure. Okay. Well, it sounds like you've given us a lot to think about here, Michael, whether it's uh, the U.S. tenure at two and a half percent, the fact that the Fed may not be able to control the yield curve, whether China becomes a reserve currency, whether inflation hits four plus percent. I mean, you've given me enough that I, I, I got to go. Uh, Nightmares. I got to go get a stiff drink now. <laughs> well, it's lunchtime out there, so. So, uh, but Michael, thank you. Thank you so much. Very insightful. I, we could go on for another two hours. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to know you and your work. I uh, hope we keep in touch. And uh, I do want to encourage everyone. I, I do think uh, the book is worth its weight in gold. Uh, not that heavy, but it's, but it's still worth a lot. <laughs> uh, very helpful. Really forced me to think differently about a couple of different things about whether you know, QE lowers rates or raises rates and whether rates actually matter whether or not refinancing or, you know, what's the role of capital markets and, you know, what's the price of money and, and, and sort of forced me to re-question uh, a bunch of assumptions that I've just sort of been operating with. And so uh, for that purpose alone, I think it, it was really, really constructive and helpful. Uh, so Michael, thank you, thank you very much. I really thank you for coming. Enjoyed it enormously. Thanks so much, everybody. All right. So thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. If you find value in these discussions, we hope you'll consider supporting this series by becoming a member of the Think for Yourself community. More information can be found at www.patreon.com slash And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 